This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Good afternoon. It's good to be together again as we have been walking through this series, um, this series of the most popular sermon Jesus ever preached, this series uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been talking through for the last better part of a couple of months now, looking through this idea, how Jesus sees the kingdom and how his kingdom works so different, even opposite from the ways that we function. Things that we would think are up, Jesus shows are down. Things that seem to be on the left, Jesus shows on the right. In many ways, the Sermon on the Mount feels very backwards. So many things in this sermon just feels upside down. And many of the things that are said here aren't things on its surface that would ever make you feel good. Like a lot of the things that Jesus has said here are not things that would normally make you feel good. Think about some of the things that he, that he points out. When, when Jesus starts pointing out, hey, by the way, here's how my kingdom works. You've worked this way, but here's something. You want to be blessed, be poor in spirit. You want to be blessed, mourn. You want to be blessed, be humble. You want to be blessed, get really hungry and thirsty. You want to be blessed, be peacemakers and not peacekeepers. You want to be blessed, be persecuted. You're blessed when they insult you and when they persecute you. None of that makes sense like conventionally, right? None of that makes sense in our kingdom. So Jesus already turns everything on its head. He already challenges what you think you know. What's interesting is we like to, there's a phrase that people will use oftentimes to almost show that something must be wrong. We say the word revisionist. And anytime somebody changes something that you thought you knew, there's an automatic defense mechanism that comes up and goes, oh no, that sounds like revisionist history or that, that sounds like revisionist theology. And Jesus is saying, Anything you have wrong needs to be revised. You feel very comfortable in the way that you think and the way that you function, but there are areas in the way that you think and the way that you function that needs to be revised. And so we should always be open, and this is what Jesus challenges us to do. We said before that so much of Jesus' kingdom operates like a paradox, and the definition we used is truth on its side, waving its hand for attention. This idea that Jesus says something that says, this is going to seem really off, it's going to seem really backwards, but you need to pay close attention because this is how my kingdom works. And again, it's not always going to feel good. There was a, a uh, famous uh, theologian in the, in the 50s who published a critique of C.S. Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis, Language in the Wardrobe, obviously not his deepest theological treatise. He's got some other ones that are much deeper, but well-known as the greatest Christian thinker of his time had written so many incredible books about what it means to know God, understand God, what it means to deal with grief, what it means to deal with loss, how to understand love, like so many deep things about who God is. But there was a critique that was written by Dr. Uh, Pittenger, and here's what he said. He, he, he basically said that he didn't think Lewis cared much for the Sermon on the Mount. He said, in all of my readings of him, he just seems to almost not want to deal with some of the things that Jesus says. Some of these things seem to be so uncomfortable that he seems a little uh, uncomfortable with it. And here's how C.S. Lewis responded. He said, as to caring for the Sermon 
on the mouth. If caring here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. And his point was, and this is maybe something we should all think about, we're not even supposed to like everything that's brought in correction. Like there are things that are going to sometimes smack you in the face because it's a truth that maybe is inconvenient or a truth that we don't want to hear. But you're not supposed to like everything you hear. But you are supposed to be changed by it. And so in many ways, C.S. Lewis is saying, yeah, like I don't get excited about the truths that are here. I don't don't get excited all the times about some of the hard things that are here. And anybody who would like it, I would wonder what's wrong with them. Because some of these things should make us uncomfortable. And this, one of the last, the last teachings in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to read is very much that, where Jesus quotes what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were saying, and he answers that with the law of Moses and what the law of Moses actually taught. And so I'm going to read this for you really quickly. Think about this. This is one of the last, this is the last of what you might call um, kind of these opposite sayings or uh, these very counterintuitive sayings that Jesus makes here. Uh, And here's what he says. It's about love. We're just saying about love, right? Oh, how we love you. Affection, adoration. And yet this is what Jesus says about love. Matthew 5, beginning with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What's interesting here is you're seeing, again, something that is very opposite, something that just seems very backwards, something that just doesn't resonate well with the way we normally function. It's easy to love people who love me. It's very difficult. It's not even just, I have to love somebody that doesn't seem to demonstrate a love for me. What about people who demonstrate a complete lack of love for you? What about people who demonstrate actual hatred for you? What about people who, you know, when you dig down into this word enemy in the scriptures, it's not just somebody who is blatantly against you or blatantly coming after you and targeting you. But in many ways, this word enemy refers to people who just have a division over the fact that they disagree with you. This word is applied many times when people have a division or there's something I just don't agree with about this. I don't agree with this personality trait or I don't agree with this approach to something or I don't agree with choices that were made. We're not just talking about sin. We're talking about preferences and we disagree and there becomes a division there. That word enemy gets applied there too. Because many times if there's any type of division or any type of disagreement, my desire to advocate for you or my desire to be there for you changes, it wanes. Or your desire to do the same for me wanes. And Jesus starts to challenge them and say, you've had this saying, and we'll talk about the saying in a minute, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies 
or you're not one of God's children. Do you hear that? Love your enemy, or you're just not one of God's children. That's a heavy, heavy statement. Right? Because, because ultimately, you create whatever category you want of enemies, the worst of the worst at the top there, if you don't love them, then you can't possibly be a child of God. Jesus just blatantly, you know that this wasn't fun to hear. And here in this last of his teachings at this part, he's destroying their thinking and showing them that they have not kept God's law and they need the grace of God if they're going to be righteous in God's sight. That's what he meant when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, these religious leaders that ostensibly were the best example of what it meant to live in God's kingdom. They were the best example of what it meant to be godly and to be holy. And he says, what they have is not it. If you can't exceed that, you don't get it. You want to know what it means to exceed that? Love your enemies. We saw this in the last, one of the last things where Jesus taught that a person is not to resist the one who is evil, but to do good to those who try to harm you. And no one has ever perfectly done this. And this teaching again shows us this, that, that we have this deficiency before God. Jesus immediately presses us into things that he knows we can't do on our own. There's a reason for that. Hey, I'm going to tell you, if you want to be like God, do something that only God can do. If you want to actually be considered a child of God, do something that only God could do. There's a reason why he's challenging and calling us to that, because at some point, we have to get to a place where we can go back to the very first verse of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus reminds you, hey, there's a, here's what perfection looks like. And if you can't be here, you can't be one of his. But guess what? The beginning of this is acknowledging your imperfection, acknowledging your brokenness in spirit so that he gives you that righteousness. You can't do it on your own. So there's a beautiful thing. It's, it's challenging, but it's also true. We have to go, man, I, I don't do this well. This loving of the enemy, I don't do this well. And likely I don't do it well because I rarely see myself as someone else's enemy. I just see everybody else as my enemy. Like when is the last time you thought, man, I'm, I'm a real enemy of that person. I've, I've behaved in a way that shows, would, would demonstrate myself to be an enemy of this person. When is the last time we've been humbled by just that truth and go, man, I've, there's some ways I've just not shown love at all. I've kind of been comfortable just remaining in this place of being, of being an enemy. See, that keeps us from ever humbling ourselves to even begin to pray for anyone we see as an enemy because we feel justified in where we are. So if we are their enemy, well, that's their problem. It's not mine. But Jesus calls us to something else. He's getting us to this place all throughout the Beatitudes and throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is always about this inward, this inner reality that should be true. He's saying the Pharisees have been really good at teaching you all the external realities that should be true, right? Don't murder. But I want to get to the inward reality. If you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder. Don't commit adultery. That's the external thing. But I want to get to the internal thing. If you have lust, and you lust after someone, you're already guilty. So when, when Jesus is always talking to us, keep this in mind. I don't care where you are, what church we're ever at, any place you are in life. If all you do is walk away with a list of do's and don'ts, and you don't actually hold on to the 
internal reality that needs to be true to support those do's or don'ts, you're nothing different than the Pharisees that are here. You don't have, this isn't the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus isn't, here's how you do all these things. Keep these checklists so that you can do everything well. Congratulations, you look like one of mine. Jesus is always concerned about what's happening on a heart level. He's always concerned about if this internal reality then is undergirding these external realities that we strive for. So you have uh, this this, uh, passage that Jesus quotes All of the Jewish audience would have known this. This is from Leviticus 19, and it taught you to love your neighbor. Everyone knew this. Love your neighbor. Everyone knew uh, that it was the the job, it was the role of anyone that was a part of God's uh, community to love their neighbor. The teachers of the law, though, did not teach this to mean that we are to love every person that we come in contact with. They had a completely different way of teaching this and a different interpretation. Again, we were supposed to understand this to mean, man, anybody that I'm around, anybody that I come in contact with, anybody that's in my purview, I'm supposed to love them. And yet, they taught that this meant, in many ways, and this is what Jesus quotes, they had created this axiom that says, love the neighbor, but hate your enemy. Now, this might sound like, man, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody create that? We do that with scripture all the time. We take one scripture and then we add some like conventional wisdom to it afterward. And it makes sense. Listen, I love people, but I'm only loving people if they love me. Makes sense, right? I'll go hard for people who go hard for me. I'll advocate for people who advocate for me. I'm not going to go hard for somebody who's actively persecuting me. I'm not going to advocate for somebody who seems to be a complete enemy of me. That just doesn't make sense. it's, It's logical. It makes a lot of sense. And yet Jesus is challenging and saying, but that's not how love works in my kingdom. There's something different about the way my love operates. See, the law of Moses never taught Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They just added that on because it just seemed to make sense. It only taught you, Moses only taught to love your neighbor. These teachers of the law understood this to mean exclude your enemies. And we see this illustrated in Luke 10, right? In Luke 10, when Jesus starts to teach the parable of the good Samaritan, remember, because he says, love your neighbor, and they almost try to, the one person tries to justify themselves and says, but wait a minute, you're saying love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? That question was really a question that's asking, who am I allowed not to love? Who is my neighbor? You tell me I got to love my neighbor, help me differentiate, because there's some folks I really don't want to have to love. Please tell me they're not in the group. And that's why he gives you this incredible parable that breaks down. Let me show you what it is. I'm going to give you somebody that you all seem as, that you all look at as an enemy, this Samaritan. What what people during that time would call a half-breed, people who didn't have the right theology, they're going to be the hero of this story. They're going to be the one I'm going to show you what it means to love. They're going to love people that are supposedly their enemies, this Jewish person that's been beaten and left for dead. I'm going to show you what love looks like by showing you someone who loves their enemy. So in other words, who is your neighbor? Everybody. You don't have, you you can't opt out. There's nobody. This is hard. This is very hard. There is nobody for whom we should not have some reservoir of love and advocacy. There is no one 
It doesn't mean it looks the same. It doesn't mean that the relationships are the same. But there should be no situation where we are not at least wrestling through, how do I love this person? There should not be a situation where we're like, you know what? Sorry, they're one I just can't love. I know we felt it. I don't know if I can love that one. And we'll say things and make it really nice like, I mean, I don't want nothing bad to happen to them. Because that's the way we kind of justify, I don't want nothing bad to happen to them. You know, I would, I would hate that. I would, I would be sad if they got hurt and I don't want anything bad to happen to them. But don't look for me to go that extra mile. I saw a phrase, and, and on some level, there's truth in this, but I'm not going the extra mile for someone that doesn't go a few steps my way. Now, it makes sense in some situations. Don't get me wrong, and there's a lot to talk about and what healthy boundaries and all of that, very important. But in the grand scheme of God's kingdom, that still isn't where we should be. Because there's something about our love that should look different. There's something about the way we love one another and love our neighbor and love our enemies that should look very different. So if it doesn't, Jesus says, we're not looking like we're one of his and we're not loving like we're one of his. So verse 44, love your enemies. What is he meaning here? Love your enemies. We've already talked about it. This word enemies is a very broad term. It's a broad word. It doesn't just mean like some type of physical altercation, someone that's trying to physically harm you. It's something much more broad, much more kind of general here. This idea that people can have any kind of difference of opinion or they are positioned differently from you. And as a result of that difference of position, there's an actual division between the two. There's a division there. Sometimes there's a felt division. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes you see it. You ever been in the room and you can just tell that like, yeah, they're not, they're, they're not really feeling me right now. You've been there, right? You can just sense that like, we're not simpatico like we were before. And that's going to happen, right? It's going to happen. We're going to have difference of opinion. But how your heart starts to orient when you have a difference of opinion, you start realizing, and you may not realize how you're dividing yourself from, and you're actually casting yourself as an enemy, and you stop loving the person that you actually have a, diff- a difference of opinion with. And you may not even realize you're doing it. But what it means to care for, protect, and advocate for, you stop doing it. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything on the offense, right? You didn't do anything to like intentionally cause any kind of harm. But what it means to to just kind of stand aside and allow whatever harm to come, that's how enemies function. And so Jesus is actually calling us to do something more than that. What he, what he meant when he said to love your neighbor was that you would love even your enemies and then pray for those who persecute you. Just listen to that command. Pray for those who persecute you. Not pray for those to stop persecuting you first. Not that we can't pray that, but that's not what Jesus focuses on. Not pray for your way of escape. Not pray for your way of relief. But pray in such a way where your heart is oriented toward and for the one that persecutes? I don't preach this as one who's, who's arrived because I don't get it. It doesn't, it doesn't compute humanly. Well, you're in danger. Or if you're hurt, if we go take it to its furthest extreme and you're in danger and things are happening, you're going to be praying, Lord, we need a way out. And there's nothing wrong with praying, Lord, we need a way out. And Jesus has really given us this both and. There's nothing, the Bible's replete but full of examples of people praying for a way out and praying for God to deliver and God doing so. But Jesus is saying, this is something that should happen concurrently. You can pray a bunch of things at one time. Lord, I 
want relief, Lord, I pray for their heart. Lord, I want relief, Lord, I still pray that they're well. Lord, I want relief, but Lord, I pray for something good or whatever necessary correction, and that can always turn into like, Lord, get them. We gotta be careful. Theologians call that imprecatory prayers, and there are some in the Bible where you're just kind of praying, Lord, I need you to bring your swift judgment on them because they're wrong. David does it. I'm not trying to justify, but David does it. But the truth of the matter is that you have to have a heart that is oriented for even the enemy. And that's the thing that has to change. That's not normal. That's not natural. Something has to change within so that even if we feel offended, feel hurt, feel disappointed, that we still have a heart posture that says, not just a mouth that says I'm for you, but actions, behaviors, plans that say I genuinely am for you. This seems unthinkable. It's not the natural course of actions for humans. But the wonderful thing is that Jesus is not telling us to do something that he did not do himself. Look at how he loved his enemies. Look at the ways that that he showed genuine love. Put it this way. Most of our love, all of our love, is limited and discriminatory. All of us. We love discriminately, naturally. Just makes sense. I love the people that love me. I love the people that I know. I love the people that I rock with. I love the people that are safe. All sensible things, not wrong things. Because that's our natural bent, right? So we should never be anything less than that. But Jesus is saying, you're actually called to be more than that. This idea of indiscriminate love, that's the love of God's kingdom. Indiscriminate love. That's the love of God's kingdom. So what does it mean to, to love indiscriminately? Jesus models that. We quote it all the time. Romans 5 reminds us that he came to the earth while we were still enemies. While that word is used on purpose. Sometimes that word gets throw, it throws us off because we're like, I never, I never did anything to try to hurt God. I never did anything to try to hurt Jesus. When I was a kid, I would see this and I'm like, wait a minute. Like, that seems awfully harsh. Like, I, I'm, I'm a kid. Like, I haven't done anything yet. How have I hurt? And this is what's interesting. Because in many ways, what this word enemy simply means is if you're not proactively advocating, if you're not proactively seeking out what's best for the other, then you're you're either one or the other. There's no neutral. Either you're loving and advocating or you're an enemy. That's it. Either I'm moving in your direction or I'm not. And if I'm not, I'm an enemy. Because if I'm not moving in your direction, it doesn't mean I'm trying to harm you. But what it might mean is when other things are coming to harm you, I'm not moving in your direction to defend you either. So either I am loving you or I'm an enemy. That's it. There is no neutral. There is no middle ground. There is no balance. You're either one or the other. And so Jesus is turning this on his head and showing he, he, he did that in such a way. While we were yet enemies, he died for us. He didn't wait for us to become friends. He didn't wait for us to choose him. While we were enemies, he died. Why? So that we could be saved from the very sin that demonstrated that we were enemies. That's why when he's on the cross and he's praying for his enemies and his prosecutors and his persecutors, and he says what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What manner of love is this? How? Would that ever work for any of us? 
This is the worst situation you could be in. This isn't like, Father, forgive them because they might do some stuff to me. Or, Father, forgive them because I've heard that they're really, really awful. Or, Father, forgive them. I know what they did to somebody else. Jesus is on a cross, dying, brutally. And where he goes and where his mind goes and where his heart goes is, I still want to be able to show love for them. I still want to be able to show love for the ones who are actively, quite literally, persecuting me. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It seems impossible for us to do, doesn't it? I mean, it does. How can we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? And Jesus is getting ready to give us that motivation, right? He's going to tell us how we do it. So he, he's given us the what? This is what you need to do. This is what it looks like to be in God's kingdom. This is what it looks like to love like someone who is, that is befitting of someone who is a child of God. Verse 45, he gives us the basis for this enemy love. If you were to call this like love for enemies, this idea of enemy love, friend love, neighbor love, friend, uh, uh, relationship love, spouse love, uh, uh, family member love, all that we can make sense of. That is that's very intuitive. It doesn't take a lot to understand. But this enemy love, we got to figure out. I don't have to ask you what the basis is for family love. We all have our different answers, but they all would be pretty close right? Usually when there are um, uh, mutual affinities between the two of us, it's easier to love each other. We're friends because we like the same stuff. Sometimes we're friends because we're against the same stuff. Whatever. We love each other because of those things. This is something a little bit deeper. What is the basis for enemy love? What, What is it that undergirds me even trying to love someone who is a demonstrated enemy? And Jesus is going to show you The basis for that has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God's character. Everything to do with God's. This is why it's hard when we get, we have legitimate frustrations and legitimate issues and legitimate hurts. And and sometimes for, for understandable reasons, we just can't get past them. Like I'm so hurt. I'm so frustrated. And maybe there has been made no remedy for the things that hurt me. So how am I supposed to even go there now? Why would I? That's a better, why would I? What's the impetus for me to try to love someone who has harmed me? There's been no apology. There's been no reconciliation. There's been no repentance. What would make me want to love this person? Just give me one thing, one shred of empirical evidence that would say it's good sense for me to love the person that's harmed me. And Jesus doesn't give you any of it. He says, it's God's character. The character of God. For those who are called by God, for those who have been redeemed by God, the character of God is what motivates you to love like God. That's it. It's not your goodwill. It's not our willpower. It's not the fact that we are just naturally benevolent people. It's not because I'm just a kind person that way and that's just how I'm wired. None of our wirings would take us here. None of them. They would never take us here. The basis given for loving your enemies is what? So that you may be sons, children of your father who's in heaven. That's the basis. Why do I do this? Because I look like my parents. Why do I do this? Because I look like my dad. That's the basis he gives. 
He doesn't give it like, you know, why do you do this? Because put yourself in their shoes. He doesn't do that. He doesn't mean he could. He does this in other places. He could be like, I mean, imagine you've been there before, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't create analogies for us to be able to connect. And to, he actually wants us to step outside of ourselves. The reason why you love in a way that's not human is because you need to be connected to the one who created humans. You need to reflect the one who created mankind. That's what we're here for. So every single time we're doing anything, I don't care what it is, whatever uh, 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 disciplines we have, whatever good godly things are happening in our life, ask yourself this question. What aspect of God's character is motivating me to do this right now? If it's just because you did it all the time or because you loved your grandmother who did it all the time, so you do it, and it's just this familial connection that you feel, or this is what we always did when I was a kid and it just makes me feel so familiar, that ain't got nothing to do with God's character. It has some, it's not, and that, it's not to say that those traditions are bad. Listen, repetition is great. Sometimes your heart's in it, sometimes it's not. But at some point in your maturity, you need to be able to go, where is God's character in this? If I can't connect God's character, I may not really be looking like God at all. So what's the point? God's very nature and practice, God's nature is to love all people, even enemies. And as we noted, we see this in Jesus who, who loved his enemies and prayed for his persecutors. Why? Because it's his character. It's his nature. Children resemble their parents. Children resemble their parents. It's the reason why, really, you think about why uh, when Paul gives some of the criteria for elders and church leaders, make sure that their kids are well-behaved, basically. Make sure that their kids are well-raised and, and, and that they're actually taught to be respectful and to be loving. Why? Because in many ways, if you, what does he say? If you can't take care of your own family, how can you shepherd the people of God? In other words, if this is how your kids and your family behave and comport themselves, what does that say about you? Now this, that can go in a whole bunch of shame lines and that's not where we're going. This is a bigger picture here. If there are character deficiencies because they're not being discipled well at home, then you have to ask yourself, then what kind of disciple are you? And so in the same way, what he's showing us is if you are one of his, then you ought to look like him, period. If we say that we love Jesus, we just saying it. Jesus, we love you. But we go outside and say, enemy, I don't. Then stop singing. Just admit, Jesus, I love part of you. Jesus, I love the aspect that where I get to love the people I want to love. Jesus, I have no problem showing your love to the ones I think are deserving. But the ones that are not, I ain't got nothing to do with you, Jesus. I'm going to handle that on my own. So we do this because we resemble our Father in heaven. We show that we're God's children and we're in relationship with him whenever we choose to love our enemies. That's it. You choose to love enemies because this is one, this is one of the things that differentiates what it means to love Jesus from like any other religion or any other organized way of thinking and faith to say, I am choosing willfully intentionally. Some, there are some religions that are absolutely, we don't want violence on anyone and we will abstain from causing any problems. But abstention is not proof of love either. Intention is proof of love. I need to intend to love you and then make a point to do so. That's it. 
So this, some, this, is, this is different, y'all. This is very different from the way we normally are taught to love. And it's even more than this, because you notice in verse 45, verse 45, you see, again, uh, he says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus doesn't merely say, you'll be children of, of, of your Father. He doesn't just say that. There's this further explanation that's given. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, sending rain on the just and the unjust. You see the point Jesus is making? He's saying, you're to love your enemies because God does good to everyone. In other words, it's not your job to stop the rain from falling on the one that stopped your rain. It's not your job to stop the sun from shining on the one that shaded out your sun. It's not your job. Because God does both. It's God that does that. We've seen this in the past. When he says, vengeance is mine, you don't have to take it. That actually frees you to keep loving. Because what happens is we feel, we all do, we feel this this compunction. We feel this, this need to enact justice on some level. I don't like that you did that way back when, and I still haven't seen you pay for it. I don't like that you made me feel this thing and you still haven't had to come and deal with it with me. And so I want to see something happen. I want to see some type of justice befall you. And so if I can be a part of bringing said swift justice, I would love to in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, this is not at all what it means to love in my kingdom. This isn't what it means to love in God's kingdom. You know, love your enemies because God does good to all. His sun doesn't just rise on the good, but also on the evil. His rain doesn't just fall on the just, but also the unjust. God shows repeated and prolonged favor to everyone in different ways. We are supposed to resemble our Father, and our Father does good to all. If he allows rain to fall on the unjust, then whenever it's in your power, continue to pour rain on the unjust. When you are able to love and advocate, even if it hurts and it's hard, you still do that. And this isn't so you can look like a pushover. That's the thing. People are like, you're just weak. You don't know anything else to do. You're just trying to keep people from being angry with you. You look weak. The truth of the matter is, if if I look weak, then Jesus was weak. If I look weak, then God was weak. But if Jesus can show this kind of love even for the enemy, then this is the only thing I should be moved to do showing prolonged favor on all. We're supposed to resemble him. We show the world that we are children of God when we love people, including our enemies, and not just our friends. That's why Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Remember this? We always knew the greatest commandment, love your Lord your God, heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was the standard. And Jesus says, I I got a new one for you. I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna raise it to the God level. And here's what I'm going to tell you. He says that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to also love one another. And then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how people know. By loving in this very unreal way. You might call it a radical love. This radical, illogical, foolish love. Because it seems pretty foolish. Seems pretty illogical. 
Why would I advocate and try to love well somebody who does not care about loving me? That just feels really foolish. And we can, there's a lot to parse out on what that looks like. It doesn't necessarily mean <clears throat> making ourselves ultimately vulnerable and, and dealing in abuse and all of that. There's a lot to parse out there, please. But the heart posture, again, we can't walk through every example, but the heart posture should be one that says, Lord, I don't know how to do this. I'm struggling, but I, I want to be able to love them in the midst of what they may be doing to me. This new commandment, love one another as I've loved you. You got to always think about that. If Jesus, we could always call that kind of the platinum rule, right? So you don't just love people the way you want to be treated. and treat. You love people the way Jesus loved you. So my question is, have you ever been an enemy of Jesus? That's the ultimate question. Because if you can't love the enemy, that means you've never seen yourself as an enemy of Jesus. Because you won't be moved by his love for you. Because you'll think he loved you because you deserved it. But if you see yourself as, man, in my own rebellious heart, I've been an enemy as well, and he has loved me well. If I'm overwhelmed by that kind of love, that's his character. That's the character that comes through when it's time for me to show the same love. And it's that kind of thinking that people will know and say, there's something different about you. You have to be connected to something different. In other words, I need to know who your daddy is. There's something about you, whatever family you come from, I need to understand that. Because we don't do that in my family. That's not how we function. We don't, we don't love that way. My family, you do this, you get cut off. This whole idea of loving people that ought to be cut off, I don't understand that. And you don't really understand it until you end up getting cut off. And then you find yourself in a place where you're like, I'm looking for love. I'm feeling, maybe I did something deserving of it, but I'm sitting here alone by myself trying to figure out what can I cling to now because I've been cut off. And this is where Jesus wants to remind us, that's where you were when I found you. The second basis for enemy love you see in verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Listen, the second basis for enemy love, first is God's character. Second, we are, we are called to be different. We're called to be different. The reason why I want to start with God's character is because in church, it's often that's always the first go-to. Do this because you're supposed to be different. We don't start with the shoulds, because if I tell you to just go, if we say just go be different, you'll be different on your own strength. You got to start with God's character first, right? We talked about that, the indicative and the imperative. Be different is the imperative. The indicative is God's character is what actually moves me to do this. So now we can say we're called to be different, different as lovers of God and disciples of Jesus. If we only love those who love us, what have we done that is so special and different? What makes you different? You love people that loved you. It's amazing that we think we're doing so well because we love people who love us. We think we are really nailing God's command because we love our friends and we love people who are nice to us. And Jesus says, this kind of thinking is crazy. This kind of thinking is not enough. This kind of thinking isn't God's thinking. Why? Because everybody does that. You don't have to be changed at all in order to love that way. You don't have to know God at all in order to love that way. It's a lot of great people who love this way. So, so something else has to, be, has to be different here. Almost everybody does it. So in other words, what credit is it to you to just love people 
who love you. You love your spouse. You love your kids. You love your parents. You love the people in your church, hopefully. Big deal. We can struggle even with those, but, but it shows how far removed we are from obeying this command. Loving people who love you is the easy part. Loving people who are your enemies is the hard part. Do not just love those who love you. So we love everyone. Somehow, in some way, in these various uh, chapters of our lives, what does it mean to love, advocate, and still do good like God does, do good for all? If I have an opportunity, albeit begrudgingly, to pour a little rain, can I? If I have an opportunity, albeit begrudgingly, to be able to bring a little bit of sunshine into someone that's an enemy, can I? Or do I withhold it because I feel justified in doing so? This idea of radical love means we get past the what I think I'm owed, what I think I deserve, or what I think you deserve. Radical love goes past that. And we see it expressed again, the same idea in verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Again, this idea that we're supposed to be gracious to everyone, not just our circle of friends, not just other Christians. Jesus removes all the fences and breaks down all the walls. Why? Because God leaves no room for self in this command. He doesn't leave any room to just focus on self. But I feel, but this happened. But I'm dealing with, but you don't understand what I'm still trying to heal from. All of that is true. And again, there's a lot of, of, of talk. We have to sit down and talk about a healthy way to do it. But you listen, whatever it is, you ought not get to a place where you can go to sleep at night and go, I have now reasoned to myself why I don't need to love them. If you get to a place where you have comfortably reasoned yourself out of loving someone, you are not where God is. And it takes something deeper than just our goodwill to do it. God has left us no room to be selfish with this command. We have to think about others first, even if they're our enemies. The point Jesus is showing us is that people like us who have been beneficiaries of such undeserved graciousness ought to be able to understand this concept and apply it to others. They receive our undeserved kindness, our undeserved graciousness. Why? Because we've received the same from God. And the final thing Jesus tells us, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this idea of perfection is not the way we normally would think, like without any type of stain or without any type of deficiency. This is more of a word that refers to maturity, completeness. Be complete be mature. This is this grand and amazing statement that is also very disturbing. You should be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the ideal, to be complete, to be mature. The ultimate mark, though, of that kind of perfection is a love that's not determined by the loveliness or attractiveness found in the person. Do you get that? So, so this is not a love that's defined by they did something that was so uh, it, it merited my love. You see how fine they were? I couldn't help but look at them. You see all the things they did for me? I couldn't help but to love them. That's, that's a meritocracy. Okay, I get it. We all function in a meritocracy. You do something that merits my love. I, in turn, that's our exchange. I give you my love. 
<clears throat> and yet, according to Jesus, he says perfection. Maturity is a love that is not contingent upon their attractiveness. It's a love that's not contingent upon them doing the good things for you. This is something that's deeper than just that. And we love that way because we're adopting God's character in our lives. Yet it's disturbing. Why? Because to be perfect or to be complete or to be mature in that way is the highest of standards. Now, there have been those who have tried to make this idea a little bit easier by pointing out that the word perfect, you know, they'll almost uh, uh, take it down and go, well, maturity means something different. And so if you're mature, you know, you're going to have a lot of times where, where you're just not going to be able to do it well. And it's true. There's no question that we're going to have times where we don't do it well. But don't let that be an excuse because, yes, our comparison is to the character of God. It is. And to be complete and mature like our Father is to be is to accept the fact that it is a daunting task. We understand that there are going to be times where we just struggle. Maybe some of us now are struggling. <clears throat> I know some of the stories in this room, some of you are dealing with some really heavy, painful relationships, some ways in which you have been betrayed, some ways in which you have been hurt, ways in which you're still trying to figure out, what do I do with that? And you have to ask, answer that question. How do I love or show love and, and want to see good for this person or people that has caused real pain to me? And so there's a struggle and we accept that there is a struggle and it is daunting. But this command from Jesus brings us full circle back to what we started with earlier today. That first line on the Sermon on the Mount, what it means to be poor in spirit. There is a blessedness in acknowledging our inability to be perfect. There's a blessedness in acknowledging all the ways that we fall short because that's when you know the only way that I'm going to look like God is by me depending on God for this one. That's the only way. I'm not going to have it in me to do this. I'm just not. This, do you know what this person did? There's just no way that I could do that on my own. So now, so here's the thing. It's not just, it's too hard, God. You just, I just, you just have to do your work on me. It's Lord, give me more of that part of your character. Let me spend some time thinking through that part of your character until I'm so arrested by it that I can't help but to display it. I need to be so overwhelmed. So the more that I have a hard time uh, being able to love you because of some horrible things you did to me, that means I've got to get into all the ways that Christ has loved me that way. Lord, help me to see how radically you love me. Because right now, I don't have this kind of radical love for this person. That means I need more of you. So give me more of you. Let me dig into more of you. So understand when we look at the law of God and we see his character and that perfect law, it does cause us to be poor in spirit. It does cause us to mourn over sin. That's what God desires from us. That's a part of the cycle. So you get to the point, I need to love him this way. I can't, man, I'm poor in spirit. God, I'm mourning over the fact that I still don't have this aspect of your character. That's, and it's because of that that I'm hungering and thirsting after your character. And then in all of that, that's when the comfort, that's when the growth, that's when the sanctification happens. And so a little bit more of Christ's character starts to come. Y'all, this usually, your greatest maturity happens in the most difficult times. Nobody's ever matured by just chilling. Nobody's ever matured by just letting things just flow and come to them as it is. I'm just going to take it easy and whatever comes my way, I'm just going to go with the flow. Nobody's ever grown that way. Sometimes you deceive yourself in thinking you've grown that way. 
Sometimes you deceive yourself and I just take everything, come with me, and I just, fl- I just flow when it happens. There's a time for that, but growth doesn't happen that way. Growth happens when these difficult challenges come and Jesus goes, hey, this situation you're in, as a result of you going through this difficulty, you're getting ready to get more of me. Your maturity is getting ready to change. You're getting ready to grow and look more like me. You're having a difficulty with that person? I'm about to teach you how to love in a whole new way. This doesn't lessen our obligation to the law. This doesn't mean that since we've failed, we're not required to keep that law. The goal is to be perfect like our heavenly father. And we strive for this. We strive for this mature, perfect love. We strive to turn as we preach before the other cheek. We strive to go the extra mile. We strive to be truthful. We strive for purity. We strive to not be angry with one another. We strive not to insult because that's what the character of God demands. But at this point, many times, we don't read these commands. We don't just give each other high fives thinking that we're doing it. We haven't done what God says. We are still often not doing what God says, even though we may have been Christians for many, many, many years. Does God want us to still keep pursuing this? Does God want us to keep striving? Absolutely. Why? Because we are all in the process of being. That word I said before, sanctify. That word is a very deep word. This idea that there is something supernaturally happening to change you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.